Well, good morning. Um, let me once again take a moment to extend a warm welcome to, especially to those of you who are visiting us virtually for the first time. Perhaps you're uh, new to Philadelphia. Perhaps you were uh, supposed to start a program here or um, schooling here, uh, but because of current restrictions, you can only join us virtually. Well, I still want to take this time to welcome you and encourage you to please do uh, check us out at renewalchurch.org. Um, and there under the banner, you'll be able to find About Us, I'm New. Um, and I hope that you can check that link out because it will list under there uh, more ways that you can get involved uh, even in a, a limited time like this. We'd like to do our best uh, to connect with you and to get in touch with you. So again, let me extend that welcome to you. Well, today, uh, this Sunday, I'm excited to announce we are beginning a new series, uh, a new teaching series or sermon series uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, the great American novelist Herman Melville, he once referred to Ecclesiastes as the truest of all books. And he said this because Ecclesiastes is a book that's very honest, very honest about the troubles and hardship that we face in this life, the frustrations of life, the, the futility that we encounter in this life. life. Life can just be so brutal. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is very honest about that. It addresses issues like the monotony and drudgery of work, the suffering caused when governments and leaders are unjust or fail us, the emptiness of pleasures that we thought would fill us up, the brutal monotony and tediousness of everyday life, right? Um, the reality of ultimately our frailty and death. So Ecclesiastes invites us to honestly face and deal with questions that people have asked universally throughout history. Questions like, is there meaning in life? Why can't I be happy? Why is there so much suffering in the world? And so, just having heard that brief introduction to the book, I think you'll be able to agree with me that this, the times that we're living in, uh, is a very fitting time to study the book of Ecclesiastes. Furthermore, I'd like to say if you are interested in learning more about the Christian faith, or perhaps you have a friend that is, uh, this study may be a, a particularly good time to dive right in and to join us. Because not only, again, does it deal with life's biggest questions, but it's also accessible in the sense that you don't need a lot of familiarity with Christianity, a lot of familiarity with other parts of the Bible, different characters and stories in the Bible. None of that's really referenced in the book of Ecclesiastes. So even if you have a largely unchurched upbringing or experience, you're not familiar with the Bible and a, a lot of the stories of the Bible. Ecclesiastes, in that sense, is a pretty accessible book. 
uh, that doesn't require lengthy explanation of historical background and, and references to other parts of the Bible. So um, I hope, again, that also helps in perhaps whether you want to invite a friend or you yourself are seeking to learn more about Christianity. So um, having just kind of shared that brief introduction before we actually dive into our first study in Ecclesiastes, let me invite us to bow in prayer and let's go to the Lord and ask that he would bless uh, the preaching of his word, not only this morning, but throughout this study. Okay, let's go to the Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence with us, that even though we are unable to be physically gathered as the people of God, that your spirit is with each and every one of us. And even in this time, we, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, through your word, you would make yourself known to those of us who already know you and are in relationship with you, that through this word, we would hear your voice of encouragement and challenge. And also for those of you, uh, those who might be joining who may not know you or have a relationship with you yet, that they perhaps for the first time would sense you calling out to them uh, and, and hear as it were with the ears of their heart. And so Lord, would you indeed move in this time and bless our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, a, a, a book that is so fitting for this time. We thank you that this ancient word has contemporary relevance because it is a living word and you are a living God. And so speak now, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, as I just shared uh, a, a bit ago, uh, Ecclesiastes is accessible in the sense that you don't need a lot of extensive biblical knowledge or background. However, the content of the book of Ecclesiastes is actually quite challenging because it's, it's in the genre of poetry. Uh, and therefore... Um, it's, it's under, I'm sorry, not just poetry, but it's considered wisdom literature. Uh, and so the book is very poetically written. And so at times it's kind of challenging to derive the meaning and, and draw out the meaning of what the author is exactly trying to say. Um, furthermore, the flow of thought in the book can also be challenging, right? There is a cohesiveness to the book. But having said that, at times it's difficult to know where the author is ending one thought and beginning his next thought. And so um, as the, the pastoral staff, as we preach through this book, uh, we are going to do our best uh, to make it as clear uh, and easy, as, easy to follow as possible by God's enablement. And so as we begin here in chapter 1, um, I'd like to use the following outline to help frame our study and to help you follow along. So we're going to study this first chapter under these three main headings. Okay, and so we hear the author, uh, we, he states his thesis, then proof, and then thirdly, perspective. All right, and so these are, these are three things that can help frame our study, help us follow along. These are the three points I'll be uh, sharing under. Uh, we see the author again, share a thesis, share his proof, and then we, sh we see an important uh, perspective 
shared, an important perspective shared. And so first, let's look at the thesis. Uh, the book opens with the author introducing himself in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now the title of the book, Ecclesiastes, is a form of the Greek word ecclesia, right? Ecclesia is the word that in the New Testament they use to commonly refer to the church. And what that word simply means is an assembling, uh, assembly or a gathering. And so the author refers to himself as the preacher. He calls himself the preacher. And the reason that he uses that term is because he's about to teach. He's about to drop some knowledge on this uh, gathering of the people of God, including us, right? He's about to teach the people of God, the gathering of God's people. And so that's where actually the title of the book comes from, Ecclesiastes. It is this person who's teaching an assembly and he's about to drop some serious knowledge on us. But he also says of himself, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Now the first person that comes to mind um, when we hear that phrasing would be Solomon, King Solomon. Uh, and as we see throughout the book, the wisdom that he shares uh, seems to indicate and point to Solomon's style and, and the way that he tends to speak. However, there is some debate as to whether the author truly is Solomon because he doesn't specifically say, I Solomon. And, and that's just one amongst other reasons people point to. Um, it was not uncommon in this time for a writer to write in the voice of someone else, right? They would write as if they were someone else. And this was not an attempt to deceive, but it was just a literary device that was commonly used to try to make a significant point. And so some people believe that about this book, that it wasn't actually Solomon, but some other author. But simple point I want to make is this. Either way, uh, this message, the message of the book, rings powerfully true. And we certainly sense and believe this to be the authoritative word of God. And so, right away, right away, the preacher states his main thesis on life. His main thesis on life, and we see it in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now that word translated in our English Bibles as vanity, in the original language, uh, the word literally means, literally refers to a vapor or a breath, a vapor or a breath. In other words, it's the imagery of something that's fleeting, something that's insubstantial, something you can't grasp onto. And so therefore, when he says all is vanity and he talks about life being vanity, he's conveying this, that human existence itself, life is fleeting, it's insubstantial. In other words, life is empty, it's meaningless.
It's pointless. And he follows up this statement in verse 3, saying, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The word gain is a term used to refer to economic profit. But the preacher is using it in reference to his search for meaning in life. And so the question he's, he's asking here is, does your life ultimately count for something? Is there a point to all of this? And the answer, his conclusion, his main thesis, is no. It's all vanity. Now some of you are like, man, uh, I thought people came to church, listened to, to, to preaching to get more encouraged, not to get more depressed. And, and we're going to get there. Uh, but in order to appreciate how good the good news is, first you got to hear the bad news. So again, there's the thesis. All is vanity. And for the next 12 chapters, he will make his case. He's going to give the proof of why he's calling life ultimately vanity. Why he's saying ultimately there's a pointlessness and meaninglessness to life. But he actually begins that right here in the first chapter. As he makes his introduction, he begins by citing a few examples. And so let's look at the proof, right? Our, our second major heading. Let's look at the proof. Now under here, there are three main ideas about life that he begins to unpack in making his case that life is ultimately vanity and meaningless. Three main ideas about life that he unpacks. So first of all, that life is fleeting. Life is fleeting. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will be th there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. Each generation and all that it experiences simply comes and goes. Right? Each generation fades from the mem memory of the generations that come after. The world just keeps on spinning. Think about this. Do you know the names of your great-grandparents? Right? We may know the names of our grandparents, but do we even know the names of our great-grandparents, let alone anything significant about their life? And my guess is the overwhelming majority of us probably don't know anything significant about our great-grandparents, right? Just a few generations before. And that will be true of me and my grandkids. Or, I'm sorry, great-grandkids. September 11th, 2001 was an earth-shattering day for people my age, in my generation. You know, I can still remember exactly where I was, exactly what I was doing, exactly who I was with when we watched the screen as planes flew into the Twin Towers 
and they came eventually burning and crashing down. In some ways, it doesn't feel like that long ago. And in fact, there are times, especially when I'm driving through or by New York, I think of people that I actually knew that lost their lives, that perished that day. But such an earth-shattering, significant moment in my life, you see, for my kids, for them, it's just a moment in history that they learn about in school. You know, for junior hires across the country, it's just one thing in history that they learn about and probably as they're learning about it are, are quite bored and uninterested for many of them. Your best days, your biggest accomplishments, right? I landed the job. I got into the program. We got the house. She said yes. Your best days, your biggest accomplishments, and your worst days, the things that have absolutely wrecked you, it will be forgotten. The earth will just keep on spinning. And even for those of, uh, even for those people who are in your family and will come after you, your descendants, they're not going to know. The memory of what happened to you in your life and all of its significant events over time, people are just going to forget about you and what happened to you. It won't really matter to them to the very people that actually have your blood running through their veins, but it's not going to matter to them. They won't know. Zach Eswine, he's a pastor and professor and comments on the book of Ecclesiastes. And he writes this, We have never heard of almost everyone who has ever lived. We have never heard of almost everyone who has ever lived. In other words, the vast majority of us will never be written about in a history book, will never become famous, where our legacy will last. The vast majority of us, no one's ever going to know we were here. And so do you see where the preacher is coming from? Where is, where is there any gain in that? Does my life or anything I go through even matter if it's all just kind of going to be forgotten? Second, in making his case about life's vanity, he points to the fact that life is repetitive. Life is repetitive. Verses 5 through 7, the preacher begins to, de preacher begins to describe the cycles that we see in nature. The circuit that the sun takes in the sky, which we now know is based on orbits, right? The cyclical nature of wind and the currents of wind around the earth. The cyclical nature of the water cycle with rain and streams and oceans. But he references these things not in the wonder and beauty of nature. His point is that there is a certain wariness a weariness in them. And here's what he's getting at. The sun isn't actually moving from point A to point B. It's just going around and around and around. In that sense, it's not making any progress. 
When you think about the wind around the earth, it goes again and again and again. And so in that sense, the wind too isn't going anywhere or gaining anything. It's just going in circles. Streams pour into the ocean day after day after day, but the ocean, the sea, doesn't get any more full. The water level stays pretty much the same. And so he says in verse 8, all things in this world, in this life, all things are full of weariness. He's speaking of the monotony of life that over time, as you live in this monotony, this repetitiveness, it just wears you down and makes you wonder, what is the point of all of this? Second part of verse 8, he says, The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. We can have these amazing experiences. You can go on vacation in this beautiful place, but soon that initial wonder of it all wears off. And you already, perhaps even on, you're not even done that vacation, but you're already beginning to think of where you're going to go next year, making plans for next year. And you do that every year again and again and again and again. There's a sense in which we are like children two days after Christmas, where we get bored even with good things, even with beautiful things, we eventually get bored of it and we got to look elsewhere. And that, there's a cycle in that, a repetitive cycle that is wearisome. There's a weariness experienced in the repetitiveness of our labors each day. And I know a lot of you will identify with this. You wake up, you clean your kids' toys, you do the dishes, wash the laundry, and next day, it's right back to where you started. You do the same thing over and over and over again. Put away the toys, next day it's messy. You do it again, and the next day it's messy. And you do it again, and the next day it's messy. Right? You make, for those of you who are homeowners, you make a repair on your house and something else breaks down. And then you repair that thing and something else breaks down. And then you repair that thing and something else breaks down. At work, we congratulate ourselves when we empty our email inbox, right? We feel so fulfilled that we replied to all of our emails today. Well, guess what? You sit down at your desk tomorrow and it's filled right back up again. And we do it day after day after day after day. And we can certainly begin to feel like, what is the point of this? What is the point? So much of life feels like the plight of Sisyphus in Greek mythology, who was a figure, a man, condemned to repeat the same meaningless task over and over and over again without end. What he was tasked to do was take a boulder, roll it up a hill, and then it would roll back down, and he would roll it up again. And he was condemned to do this with no end and with no relief. That is how life can feel. And so we ask, what is the point of all of this effort? These repetitive tasks, 
I just got to do again and again. And is there any point in any of this? I remember when we first got married and my wife would make, uh, make it a point to remind me, make your bed. After years of living as a bachelor, I wasn't good at making my bed. I never did, in fact. She would say, hey, when you wake up, please, it's important that we make the bed. And I would tell her, in a few hours, it's just going to be messed up again. What's the point? It gets up messed up every day. We might as well leave it messed up instead of expending energy on something like that. Of course, I learned to eventually make my bed. But the point is, there in life, because of this repetitiveness, we begin to wonder, is there a point to any of this? It wearies our soul. He continues in verses 9 and 10. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. Now, in saying there's nothing new under the sun, he's not referring to inventions or innovation. I'm sure the writer, the author, the preacher of Ecclesiastes would be shocked in what we're doing now, that you are watching me on some type of a screen, maybe even a, a phone, a handheld device, and, and that my image and my, the image of me is being cast out to you through invisible waves bouncing all around the air. I mean, he would be flabbergasted, I'm sure, by the technology. And so when he says there's nothing new under the sun, he's not talking in that sense about innovation or inventions. Instead, when he says there's nothing new under the sun, he's speaking far more comprehensively about life itself, the longings we have the challenges of life in this world. Every generation before, have, before us has experienced the same types of things. Concern over food, clothing, shelter, finding work, providing for your children, having dreams for your children, the experience of war, strife, civil unrest, corrupt dishonest, self-seeking leaders in government and in other spheres, racism, bigotry, fires, floods, pandemics, all kinds of diseases, finding love, experiencing joy and laughter, and dealing with aging, sadness, forgiveness, loneliness, None of these struggles are unique to our time, but have been faced by each and every generation before from the very beginning. New technology may change our approach to these things or the speed at which we can do them and the efficiency with which we can, we can do things, but fundamentally, the problems, the challenges, the things we face are all the same. In 2020, with all of our money, education, technology, our biggest problems in life have not really been solved. And so the preacher says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And if this is not depressing enough, 
one more area he draws attention to, which is segues well from what we just described. We are limited. We are limited. Verses 12 to 18, the preacher describes how he didn't want to turn a blind eye to the realities of life. He didn't want to just bury his head in the sand or busy himself with distractions to not think about things. Rather, he dedicated himself to finding answers to the hard questions about life. The biggest questions about life. Is there meaning? Is there a point to all of this? And so he spent his time learning everything about everything so that his conclusions would be as definitive and as credible as possible. Not like the conclusions of a guy who researches Wikipedia and skims a few Facebook posts and comes to some conclusions. No, he says, I'm going to dedicate myself to learn about everything there is to know about everything. And so what was his conclusion after this grand pursuit of turning over all the rocks, so to speak? He simply reaffirms all is vanity, striving after the wind. In that regard, he comes up empty. His search left him still wanting, lacking. Verse 15, he says, What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. What does this phrase mean? Well, for one, he's saying, in spite of all the power I have, all the wealth I have, and all the knowledge I've accumulated, I'm so limited. Because when it comes down to it, there's so much about life that I just can't fix, no matter how powerful I am or rich, or knowledgeable. There's things in life that are just broken, and I can't fix it. And then when he says, what is lacking cannot be counted, that's simply a way of saying, I look around at this world, I look around at how life works, and things just don't seem to add up. Can't be counted. I can't make sense of it. There's just this absurdity of life that I can't get my head around. He didn't have any substantial answers at the end of his search. The one substantial lesson he does come away with, he shares in verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. In other words, the more you come to learn about life and how life works, the more you're filled with sorrow. I just turned 44 this past week. And that's around the time where people face the proverbial midlife crisis. This is often a time of regret, a time of depression, because you realize life is not what you thought it would be when you were young and idealistic. There are some people who are depressed because they did not get to accomplish what they wanted But there are also others who are depressed because they actually got to accomplish what they wanted. Their hopes and dreams came true, but they found out they've discovered that there is no gold. There's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. The job you always dreamed of, 
the industry you always dreamed of being in, now that you're in it, you know what it's like. The curtain has been peeled back and you know firsthand what it's like to be in that job, what it's like to be in that field, and you are left disappointed. Now that you know what it's really like, sorrow feel, fills your soul. And it's so easy to grow jaded. And truth be told, this happens to pastors too. The hardships of ministry and pastoral life and seeing the brokenness of people's lives and the underbelly of the church, so to speak, and its brokenness can certainly be a very sorrowful experience. Now, that's the proof. And it's a hard, it's a hard thing to hear. But let's move to our final point, the perspective. Perhaps at this point, some of us are confused. You might be asking, how can this be a book of the Bible? It is so cynical. It is so jaded and it is so hopeless. It is so depressing. But that is exactly the point to which the preacher is trying to bring us. In order that we might stop hoping in this world and instead look for hope in God. There is a particular phrase that he uses again and again, and that is the phrase, under the sun. When he describes life and its many facets as vanity, as meaningless, as absurd, he's coming from the perspective of someone who's trying to understand life merely from a human perspective. That's what he's getting at when he uses the phrase under the sun. It's looking at life under the sun just from our human perspective, what our eyes can see. And indeed, that was and continues to be the conclusion of some of the world's greatest thinkers who are trying to make sense of the world, who are trying to find meaning in life, but merely from a human perspective, merely with human reason, merely with what our eyes see from a secular perspective. Philosopher and Nobel laureate Bertrand Russell said this, Unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. The late Richard Dawkins was a popular atheist philosopher, and he concluded, human existence is neither good nor evil, neither kind nor cruel, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. You see, so many of the world's great thinkers and secular philosophers, thinking from a perspective and trying to figure out the meaning of life without God in the picture, they end up at the same place. That life, from their view, there is no meaning. If everything started as an accident, there's no grand purpose. It just started as an accident. Well, that means all of life 
is an accident. There's no grand purpose. Whatever happens just happens, but there's no purpose in it. There's no ultimate meaning in it. And the sun is going to burn out one day. And it's not going to matter that any of us existed or anything in human history that happened won't really matter. You see, that is the conclusion of someone who only has the perspective looking at life under the sun, only has that human perspective. Now, this is not to say that Christians are those with faith that our life will be easy and carefree. Absolutely not. We still experience frustration. We still experience the absurdity and frustrations of life in many different ways. In fact, the biblical worldview tells us to expect life to be this way. And the reason is that it is filled with such frustration and futility is precisely because of man's rejection of God. The fact that we have pushed him away and try not to include him or submit to him. We try to live without him. And the consequence of that is that, in fact, this is why the world is the way that it is. Romans chapter 8.20, the Apostle Paul writes, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who suggested it, uh, subjected it. The word futility here is the Greek translation for the same Hebrew word we encounter in Ecclesiastes to describe meaninglessness, a vapor, a vanity. But the good news in this bad news world is that things will not remain as they are. Paul continues in verse 21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, the message of Christianity is this. The very Son of God, Jesus Christ, took on flesh and willingly subjected himself to the brutality and hardship and pain of this life, life under the sun. And although he did literally everything right, he suffered the absurdity of an unjust trial. He was arrested. He was placed in bondage and ultimately crucified in order to set us all free and all creation free from the bondage of the futility of life in this world. And therefore, as fleeting as our lives under the sun are, what we know is that because of Jesus, it ends in glory. It ends in a new heaven and a new earth where we will be living under the glory of the Son, the Son of God forever. As repetitive and therefore pointless as this life can feel, what we know is that there is a point. It is all heading somewhere. And your life and any labor that you do in the name of the Lord will never be in vain. And as limited, as helpless, as we feel in trying to fix broken things, we find great assurance that in fact, God is and promises to make all things new. This is the hope of the gospel. 
And I pray that you would continue in the weeks to come as we face the hard realities of life, that week after week as we explore different facets of the hardships and futility and frustrations of this life, that it would always also end with bringing you to the only source of hope in this life, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that resonates with our hearts in so many ways. And thank you for a book like Ecclesiastes that doesn't pull any punches, is very raw, is very honest about what life feels like what life under the sun feels like, its frustrations, its sense of futility and hardship. But we thank you that there is another perspective to be had. And that is the perspective of eternity, your view. And how as much as life is hard and frustrating and subject to futility and absurdity in so many ways that it is ultimately not meaningless, ultimately not pointless. It is all headed somewhere in your sovereign wisdom and love. And we thank you that there is tremendous hope, meaning, significance to be found in this life because the truth of who Jesus is and all that he has done. And I pray that for those of us who already know you, that truth resonates with our, resonate with our hearts more and more, especially in a time like this, where we feel the hardship and frustration of life. And I pray for those who have yet to know you, may not know you yet, that they would come to know you and the hope that is in you in the midst of living in this very frustrating and disappointing world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.